If you have a Bible, uh, I would encourage you to open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and that's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, it's been a tradition around here at Golden Hills that on the second Sunday of every new year, we have uh, a message that we give on financial stewardship, and um, it's pretty... I don't know, it's a good time to do that because in our culture, you're hearing lots of talk about, you know, the finances for 2020 and people are trying to get their finances in order and, and prepare themselves for the upcoming year of, you know, what expenses they, they are projecting to have and, and just anticipation and all kinds of reasons. Maybe kids are graduating from high school and they're on their way to college and you're trying to figure out how to negotiate all these things. And so January is always a great time to begin thinking about the financial Um, you know, life that we all live uh, for the upcoming year. You know, as people talk about finances and whatnot, I'm hearing commercials all over the place um, about different services offering their help for financial support. One of the things that alarms me, however, and I have to be very honest about this, is within the Christian world, January is also a month in which a lot of the health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers are peddling God's word for profit through their false teaching most prevalently. For instance, and I'll give you just one example, every January, a well-known prosperity gospel false teacher named Paula White, she launches a campaign, and she calls it the Sowing Seed Campaign, or Sowing and Reaping Campaign, or most recently she calls it the First Fruits Principle. And on her website, she writes about this principle. She says, when you honor this principle... It provides the foundation and structure for God's blessing and promises in your life. It unlocks deep dimensions of spiritual truths that literally transform your life. When you apply this principle, everything comes in divine alignment for his plan and promises for you. When you don't honor it, whether through ignorance or direct disobedience, there are consequences. The video on her website that accompanies this campaign depicts people sowing Um, offerings and sowing their giving, uh, the seeds in order to reap a harvest to Paula White Ministry. And um, in the video, what you see is people, what they're reaping is job promotions, they're receiving money, they're receiving um, what is called favor, which is gifts from other people. They're receiving all these perks. And that is what is intended by her and her ministry to communicate, that if you will give to her ministry, You're going to reap all kinds of perks. In fact, on the night of uh, her preaching at her, what she calls the power night, she preached this. I want you to hear from God. God already spoke to me what I'm going to write, and you're going to write your checks to Paula White Ministries. If God tells you to give $12.99, do it. Whatever the Holy Spirit speaks to you, if you need to give by credit card, do so. I have to be candid about this, church. This is really awkward for me. Preaching a sermon on finances is incredibly difficult. Um, Even now, I'm like shaking and my heart's racing because it's embarrassing uh, in some ways. And the reason is, before I became a Christian, I remember I had a TV in my bedroom and people were talking about Christianity and stuff and I didn't know anything about it. And you know how it is when you don't, hear of something and then somebody introduces you to the notion of it now all of a sudden you see it everywhere you know what i'm talking about and so i was watching tv early in the morning and i'm flipping through the channels and there it is there's two or three channels where there's these teachers on tv and they call themselves christians and 
that was what I was introduced to uh, by way of, like, you know, what is Christianity? And there I encountered a man named Kenneth Copeland, and I was introduced to Joel Osteen, Paula White I saw, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar. And what's interesting is I began to realize as you listen to them preach and you listen to what they talk about, you realize what they care about most is money. And so my conclusion as a non-Christian laying in my bed on a Saturday morning watching this was like, why would I be a Christian? These people are just money grabbers. They're sleazy. And so I resisted the gospel for a very long time because I associated the gospel, I associated with Christianity with the love of money. So when you have something like Apollo White, who has this big campaign, and by the way, um, her campaign was picked up in the national news, Newsweek, Washington Post, New York Times, Huffington Post, Fox News, the entire country of the United States of America was made aware of what she believes and what she teaches, and therefore the entire nation of America now is equating her beliefs with what Christianity is. So, why it's embarrassing for me is because, or why it's hard to preach this is because I don't want to say anything or imply anything or infer anything that would make any of you listening to me here or online or wherever to make you think that I'm putting my lot in with those folks. I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want to be confused with what they teach. And I, Lord willing, do not want our church to have the reputation that we align ourselves with that. And so I'm... Many people who don't identify as Christians have told me when we're at the baseball field or we're at the softball field or I've heard at restaurants and I encounter them that their impression of Christianity is exactly what they're seeing in the news. And so I have to spend so much time explaining, but that's not Christianity. So it's hard to sit here as a pastor and to preach on financial stewardship without people immediately thinking all this dude wants is more money. He's just trying to line his own pocketbooks. That is not what I want to do. I don't want to be associated with that. And I challenged our church in the previous services, if you hear anything out of balance with this book, contact the elders immediately. Because what I want to do today is I'm going to hold open this book and I just want to read it plainly and I just want to have it open I'm not going to pull any punches, but I also want to be very honest about what this book says. And therefore, I want us to be shaped by this book and to be informed by it so that we're not seduced by the evils of the prosperity gospel. So what is the financial motivation or what is the motivation for financial stewardship? Are we, like Paula White and the others, are we to give in order to unlock spiritual blessings that come in the form of job promotions, new cars, bigger homes, greater bank accounts? Are we to sow spiritual seeds of giving so that way we can reap a spiritual blessing of prosperity? The reality is, brothers and sisters, the Bible does speak about finances, about giving, about sowing, about reaping. It does speak about generosity and stinginess. And so we have to go there. 
but I want to show you that what the Bible describes as financial stewardship is so much better than what these prosperity false teachers are laying out there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. 6 through 15. The Apostle Paul writes this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely and he is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God. For his inexpressible gift. Father, watch over us. The parable of the sower said the gospel, which is the word of God, is like a seed and it's sown. But the evil one, like a bird, comes and tries to snatch it away. So I pray, God, hunt, hunt down those birds and kill them before they're able to Take the seed of the gospel. Protect us from the evil one that we may not be seduced by lies. And I pray, Lord, for my mouth and for my mind that you would stop me and silence me should anything come to mind and out of my mouth that is not in line with Scripture. And God, may you stop the evil one from enslaving people to the love of money. So God, we're looking to you to teach us now. And we're trusting that you will show us a better way. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. In this context, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about a situation that has arisen in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there's a famine. And what that means is resources are at a scarcity. Some of the Christians in Jerusalem are starving. They're, they're going without food and shelter, and, and they just don't even have clothing and things like that. The Apostle Paul catches wind of this, and what he does is he sends word to the Gentile churches around the known Mediterranean area. And he tells these churches, hey, this is what's happening. We have our brothers and sisters in the Lord who are struggling. We're going to come around to the churches, and we're going to do a collection. We're going to get some money together. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. But we're going to get some money together, and myself, Paul says, and two other men, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to deliver, deliver what has been collected, and we're going to ease the burdens, and we're going to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And so that's the context of what is happening. And so we're on the back end of this. We're at the conclusion of this section. And for the sake of clock and time and all that kind of stuff, I can't preach 
as much as I would like. And so we're just going to, you know, fast track it uh, and cut to the chase. And so we're in this section here. And it's about abounding in good work through cheerful giving. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he introduces this principle. He says this in verse 6, the point is this, the point of giving, the point of, of making this collection and giving to meet the needs is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is the principle of sowing and reaping. Many of the false teachers of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, they cling on to the sowing and reaping principle, and they are using it for their own selfish gain. Now, sowing and reaping as a principle, we have to be very careful that we're not misunderstanding it right from the get-go. And so I want to make sure that we're aware of the sowing and reaping principle that we use in everyday life. It's just what we call common sense. Here's what I mean. If you are a careful driver, that's what you sow, is driving carefully, guess what you'll reap? You won't get tickets. It's amazing, huh, how that works. It's common sense. Or for instance, if you sow meanness, like you're just a nasty person, that's what you sow, guess what you'll reap? You won't have many friends. That's just how that works. Unfortunately, in many Christians' minds, we have either subconsciously or just unintentionally embraced the whole idea of what's called karma. Karma is the idea that if you put good in, you are guaranteed to receive good back. And we have actually seen this happen in the church where some Christians believe that the good that I give, God is guaranteeing me that I'll get some of the good back. And that's not necessarily true. The whole book of Job is about that. Instead, we need to understand that sometimes we can put a lot of good in, but the fact is we live in a fallen world in which Satan hates us and the powers of this world are against us. And so no matter how much good we put in, we may only get back evil. And that's exactly how the Bible describes it. So you know, you can know whether or not you kind of embrace this idea of karma simply by this. If you're going to Bible study and you're serving and you're giving and you're doing all of these things, you've been a member of the church and all this kind of stuff, and you're like, man, good, 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 I'm putting all this good in. And then all of a sudden something bad happens to you. You're diagnosed with a disease or someone that you love dies or you lose your job or you get in a car accident or something like that. And your first response is, God, I can't believe this has happened to me. Why did you do this to me? Look at everything that I've done for you. Then you know that you have actually bought into this approach of karma. That you, by your giving and by your serving and by your whatever, you believe that you have deposited enough good that you are guaranteed good in return from God. This is not what Paul's teaching in the sowing and reaping principle. He is not teaching this. He is teaching a well-known proverb, a well-known saying of the first century, which is simply common sense. Common sense. You, you reap what you sow. If you're rude to people, chances are people won't want to hang out with you. It's just kind of common sense. Now, when it comes to the principle of sowing and reaping in terms of finances, we have to make sure that we understand this principle in light of what the whole Bible teaches about finances. And so this principle can be misused and often abused. And so what I want to do is go to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and show us a little fuller picture of finances and about money and about 
this idea of the principle of sowing and reaping. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in verse 3 of 1 Timothy 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Here's the key. These people are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False teachers imagine, they think, that godliness is a means to gain. Which means if you want gain, financial gain, you want material possessions, you want to be blessed and you want to be prosperous, the way you get it is through godliness. That's what they teach. But the Bible says only false teachers would believe that godliness is a means to gain. And then he goes on and the Apostle Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, those who desire to be rich fall into all kinds of temptations because of the love of money, which is a root of all kinds of evil and will ultimately lead you away from the faith. And there are false teachers out there who are advocating that godliness is, in fact, a means to gain. That if you are godly enough, you can force God's hand to bless you and to be prosperous. Paul says, no. And in fact, that's why one of the qualifications for being a church leader or being a pastor, we find in, first, in Timothy chapter 1, read this. For an overseer or a pastor, as God's steward, meaning someone who's been given something from God and is to manage it properly, these pastors must be above reproach, which means without accusation, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, notice the opposite. What is, what is the antidote to all those things? Firstly, in verse 8, but hospitable. A pastor needs to be hospitable. Now, if you remember what we talked about back in August in our hospitality series, by the way, if you're new to our church and haven't been here since August, I really, really, really encourage you to go back and listen to those messages on hospitality and our Initiate Conference on hospitality because that will give you a flavor for what we're trying to do as a church. The definition of hospitality that we've been talking about as a church is this. When we are generously leveraging our resources, whatever they may be, in loving service of others, whoever that may be, for the glory of God. We want to take our resources and generously use them to lovingly serve others for the glory of God. You can't do that if you love money. 
You won't leverage your resources in loving service of others because you're too busy using your resources for self because you love self above all things. And so hospitality is the opposite of greed, covetousness, and those kinds of things. And for all of us, Hebrews 13, 5 speaks like this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's why Paul's saying godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Be content with whatever you have. And, and what is the key to being content? What is the key to being satisfied of having peace with what we have, whether it's much or whether it's little? And he says, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has made a promise to his people that I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. In other words, the key to contentment is hearing the promises of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you and confidently trusting them. And remember, all the promises of God, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Therefore, if we cling to Christ, we have the key to contentment, whether we have much or whether we have little. And that is the very thing we read in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Sorry, Steph Curry, but that does not mean you can jump higher, run faster, and lift more than you previously could. What that verse means is, if you read in verse 10 through verse 12, the Apostle Paul is saying, whether I have much or have little, I know the key to contentment. I can do all things through Christ. Whether I'm hungry or whether I am full, I know the key to contentment. I can do all things through Christ. Because Christ is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And what God has promised to his people is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will supply your needs and I will meet your needs. You just have to trust me. And if you will trust me to keep my promises in Christ, you will be content. So I want to give you a warning, brothers and sisters. The warning is that we're living in a day and age in which false teachers abound. And they are seeking to seduce you. We read about these false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets arose, also arose among the people of the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you. Among you, church. False teachers in the church who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. I sat in my bed on Saturday mornings and blasphemed Christianity and God himself because of what I was watching on TV. Verse 3, and in their greed... They will exploit, and the word there means manipulate. They will manipulate you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We jump down to verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. 
They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. We jump down to verse 18 and 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping those who live in air. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Prosperity teachers, false teachers, manipulate people with false words, motivated by their greed. I don't know about you, but I have never encountered a false teacher who has ever spoken in such a way that it didn't make me feel good. Every false teacher will use smooth talk and flattery. As Paul says elsewhere, false teachers know what people want to hear and they give it to them. It's no different than what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember Satan? He deceived Adam and Eve not by directly confronting or contradicting God, by, but by giving them smooth words and flattery. And he was able to deceive them. Remember what he said? Ooh, God said you can't eat from that tree? That's messed up. You know what? God told you that because he doesn't want you to experience the full life. You know what happened? You, you know what will happen if you eat this fruit, Adam? You will unlock hidden potential within you and you will experience things you never dreamed possible you'll become greater more powerful you'll become the greatest version of you all you have to do is eat it god's holding out on you and so they being flattered went that sounds good i would love to be my living my greatest life so yeah and they ate And they plunged all of humanity in the natural world into absolute ruin because of it. Some things never change. Some of the manipulation that happens from false teachers comes from the Bible itself. The most popular text that I have found to be used by false teachers comes from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so they will tell you, Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and resurrected in order to make you rich. Now, there's nobody on planet Earth that would be like, for real? I want that. There's nobody who would think, eh, I don't think that's a good idea. Everyone wants that to be true. But is it? Did Jesus come, live, die, and rise in order to make us rich? Well, it would be a very odd thing for him to do, given some of the things Jesus said. (laughs) You know, things like this. Life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. Instead, you must sell all that you have and give to the poor. And then you can be my disciple. Ooh. Um, it is difficult for those who are rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. Ooh. And when you start thinking like this, you realize, oh, Jesus must be like schizophrenic or something. <laughs> That's the only way this works. So he tells you, don't love money. And at the same time, he came to give you tons of it. What? Does anyone not see this as weird? Contradictory? Absurd? So potentially, let me ask you this question. Is it possible, perhaps, 
for a person to be materially poor and yet rich? Is it, is it possible we can be content with little and yet feel as though we have much? Yes. And in fact, when you go in the Bible in chapter 6, verse 10, you see the Apostle Paul talking about that exact thing, talking about himself and his ministry. He says, we are treated as sorrowful, which means people see him and his ministry and the other disciples and apostles. He sees, they are seen as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, I'm broke. I'm poor. I'm homeless. I don't possess anything. And yet I'm rich and I got everything. Wait, what? Could it be that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again in order to make us profoundly rich in a way that we haven't even really contemplated? Rich towards God in good deeds. Well, that's how the Bible describes it. And the other thing is this, is I don't understand why, why these false teachers get away with this stuff and they say, no, Paul wrote, Paul wrote, Jesus came to make you rich. Well, why does he write in chapter 2, verse 17 this, we are not, like so many others, peddlers of God's word, which means people who use God's word to get rich. We are not like that. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. How in the world can a man say, without even blushing, I don't get rich off preaching the word? That's not our ambition. That's not our hope. That's not what we do. We're broke. We're poor. We don't have anything. And yet at the same time, as these false teachers would have you believe, Jesus came to make you filthy rich. From the Apostle Paul's pen. Not a chance. Not a chance that that is true. So what do we do about this? What is the principle of sowing and reaping? Well, the principle is pretty easy to see when we go to Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. This is Paul's first letter that he's written, and he uses that same kind of principle of sowing and reaping. Here's what he writes in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So Paul's giving in verse 6 an endorsement that those who preach and teach the word should be compensated for it. But then he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. What Paul is doing is saying, the one who preaches and the one who teaches the word ought to be compensated, but here's the reality. We need to be very careful about what we sow because what we sow is going to result in what we reap. 
So if you use your material possessions to sow for the flesh, which is for your sinfulness and your selfishness, you will reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, which is to the plans and things of God, you will reap good works. And let us not give up doing good works. What Paul is basically saying is this. It's not inherently wrong to have wealth. Just like it is not inherently right to be poor. It is not inherently wrong to increase in wealth. Likewise, it is not inherently good to be impoverished. What Paul is saying is the question that we really ought to be asking is not whether or not you have wealth, but the question is twofold. What are you doing with your wealth and why are you doing that? So whether you have much or you have little, the question remains. What do you intend to do with what you have and why? Remember, hospitality, it's generously leveraging our resources in loving service of others for the glory of God. God does not say those who are rich must be gen- uh, you know, hospitable and generous and those who are poor don't have to. He's saying, whatever you have, use it in order to lovingly serve others for my glory. And that's the principle of generosity. Whether you are rich or poor, that's really not the conversation. The conversation is, what are you doing with what you have and why? Why are you doing that? Jesus puts it like this in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. We know this principle. We give some people small responsibilities and see how they manage it. And if they manage it well and they're faithful with their little responsibility, we add a little bit more to them. You guys get how that works. Jesus then goes on to say, if then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, that is earthly treasures like money and and homes and cars and stuff, if you're not faithful with that stuff, then who's going to entrust you with true riches? Which is one of the principles for why pastors need to be evaluated by how good of a husband they are and and look at their kids and, and look at how they're able to manage their home. Because how can you manage the church if you can't manage your own home? In other words, if you can't even be a faithful steward of the resources God has given you by way of your family and and your finances and things like that, why in the world would God raise you up to lead the church? No point. You're going to mismanage it. You don't know what you're doing. Verse 12, and if you have not been found faithful in that which is another's, that is stewardship. If you're not faithful with with stuff that isn't even your own, who's going to give you that which is your own? Jesus goes on to say, no no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God and money. You must choose this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve me, God says, or are you going to serve your money? Because you can't have both. So the principle of sowing and reaping in the Bible, I would simply define like this. It's... That if you're faithful with material wealth that is given to you by God, then God will give you even more material wealth in order for you to use that material wealth 
faithfully for his purposes. That's reaping and sowing. Whatever you have, how are you using it and why? And if God finds you faithful in that, then God's going to give you even more. And as you receive more, the expectation is more faithfulness is expected. And the more faithfulness that is expected from God is supposed to be evidence in the way that we are generously leveraging our resources and loving service to others. Now, what exactly is God have in mind by way of, you know, good works and, and giving? Well, and so we're going to continue on. That was just verse 6, by the way. Here we go. Chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. Paul gives us some clues about what he means about the sowing and reaping. He says, each one, each one of us must give as he has decided in his heart. There's a very personal, very private thing about our giving. We need to make sure to decide ahead of time. Decide ahead of time what you're going to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And so what God is commanding here is, look, I want you to be intentional about what you give. I don't want you to just act impulsively. I want you to be intentional. I want you to be disciplined. I want you to be focused on what it is you're supposed to give. But what I don't want is this. I don't want you to be reluctant, and I don't want you to be compulsive. The word compulsive means to be forced by a threat, usually. And so remember what Paula White wrote on her website. If you don't give to Paula White Ministries the principle of first fruits, there will be consequences. That literally is the definition of compulsion. Literally the thing that God says, don't give for that reason. So therefore, she's dead wrong. So we don't give by compulsion at threat. And we're not supposed to give reluctantly. I don't know about you, but whenever deep inside of me I feel reluctance to give, it's usually because of a fear that I have that if I give, would it compromise my security, financially speaking? I don't know about you. Maybe you're, you're, you're just way more advanced than I am on this. But sometimes I'm thinking about giving, using whatever resources I have, and I'm kind of like, geez, I don't know, man. Like, this could compromise my security because having a savings account and a retirement, man, that, that makes me feel secure. But if I have to dip into that and give or whatever, I just feel like, ooh, I don't know, man. That, that ooh. If you feel like that, like I often do, then we need to go to our feelings and we need to ask the questions. Feelings, why do you feel that way? What are you trying to tell me? And I believe what my feelings of, of insecurity about finances is telling me is I'm beginning to love my stuff too much. And so God gives us verse 8. God is able, because deep down I'm like, Lord, if I give this, I don't know if I'll be able to be secure. I don't know if I'll have what it takes to meet the needs that I have. But watch this. God is able to make all grace abound to you. For what purpose? So that having all sufficiency, and that word could be better translated contentment, 
so that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God's grace abounds to us so that he can grant us contentment in every situation at all times, so that in any way we can be generous and we, as a result, are bounding, abounding in good works, and the good works is giving. That's what verse 7 and 8 is all about. And so it comes back to trusting God. Can I trust God to give me what I need when I need it? And if the answer is yes, then I can freely give to others knowing that God will give to me and replenish the supply. So the good work of giving is a grace of God. And the grace of God enables us, compels us in a good way to be generous knowing that he has promised to supply our every need. And verse 9 comes in and it's huge. He says, as it is written... The Apostle Paul writes, he is distributed freely. God has given to the poor. So God distributes freely. God gives to the poor. And then it concludes, his righteousness endures forever. What I love about this text is it reminds us of the righteousness of God, the moral character of God. And how we discover the moral character of God is simply by looking at what God does. And what do we see about God? From his moral character, we see that God distributes freely and God gives to the poor. The poor there is not the word for destitute. The word poor there is in reference to the laborer. So it's like your middle class and below. God gives to the poor. And when we see God distributing freely and giving to the poor, there we see God's righteousness made evident. Now think about this. We as Christians, we are tasked with the responsibility of following Jesus. We are to be like Jesus, right? Being a Christian means to be a, a little Christ. We're to intimidate, or not intimidate. That would be weird. <laughs> Imitate him. And we're to emulate what Jesus does. And so if God is distributing and God is giving and God is supplying, think about that. Verse 10. God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that means God is meeting the material needs of people around us. If God does that, God will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now the sowing on the last half of this verse about our sowing, uh, he says he will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, that obviously in the context is talking about giving. And so the God who gives and supplies materially speaking, who distributes freely and gives to the poor, that same God will supply and multiply our seed in order to sow and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Meaning God will provide for us what we need in order to sow, so that way our righteousness will be increased. Now, how is God's righteousness made evident in this text? Through the distribution, through the giving, and through the supply that he gives. So if his righteousness is evidenced by that, 
And he's going to supply us with what we need in order to increase our righteousness. What righteousness do you think God has in mind? It's the moral character of generosity. And how is the moral character of generosity made evident? Through the distribution, through the giving, and through the supplying of what is needed. So as we receive from God whatever it is He wants to supply us, and we then take those resources and distribute and to give and to supply where needed, the righteousness that we have, that harvest of righteousness, will increase. Verse 11. Now we have to test our work. Is this true? Paul goes on to say, you will be enriched. You will be enriched to have Lamborghinis, <laughs> to have sprawling estates. You're going to get upgraded. You get on that plane, you're right in the back, right next to the bathroom. <laughs> but if you just sow enough seed, you're going to get upgraded to first class. Either that or you don't have enough faith and you are a horrible person. That's the logical conclusion of the prosperity gospel. But anyways, you will be enriched in every way for what purpose? To be generous in every way. In other words, God is going to enrich you. God is going to, to, to supply you with what you need. And whatever it is that God is supplying you with, the reason why God enriches us is so that we can take the enrichment given to us and we then can quit looking at ourselves and we look out among us and we say, who is in need? And we are leveraging our resources generously. God is the ultimate provider then. His evidence is seen in how he supplies how he gives, and how he distributes. And therefore, we exhibit moral our moral character of righteousness by our giving, distributing, and supplying as God prospers us. I wish I had more time to, to, to unpack that, that stuff, but Pastor Glenn Evans has a finance class that's starting, and a lot of the principles that we're talking about here, he's going to unpack in a more practical way and teach budgeting and things like that. I highly encourage you to sign up for that class. Oh my goodness, so good. All right, uh, where was I? Verse 11. What is the aim of our generosity? What is the purpose? What are we trying to achieve by being generous in these kinds of things? And the reason why I bring this up is because the false teaching of the health and wealth gospel will tell you that the ultimate goal of you being generous is to get stuff in return. You're trying to get promotions. You're trying to get rewards. You're trying to get more money. You're trying to get, 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 get. Or another side of it is in our culture today, we have philanthropists who are giving, 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 giving. But in return, what they really want is make sure you name that next building after me. Make sure that there's a bench with my name on it. And so we want to make sure who, who, everyone knows who gives. Those are not the aims that God has in mind, nor Paul. Look at this in the rest of verse 11. Through this enrichment in which you are then equipped to be generous, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For, verse 12. For the ministry of this service, the ministry of giving, of, of being generous, is not only supplying the needs of the saints. In fact, it is doing that. Praise God it's doing that. But... 
that ministry of generosity is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. (laughs) He says it twice, the same thing twice, trying to get our attention. And what Paul is saying is, look, you have to understand, God who owns everything is going to give you and supply you with a whole bunch of stuff. And you are to generously leverage those resources in loving service to others. And when the recipients of your service and of your generosity receive the things you are giving, if you do it rightly, they will bypass you and they will give thanks to whom it belongs, not you, but God. And they will see in your generosity ultimately the generosity of God. That's why Jesus said, let your good deeds be done so that your Father in heaven might be glorified. And the more that we use what we have been given by God for God's purposes in meeting the needs in the world around us and in our church, the recipients will behold the graciousness of God, the generosity of God, and they will then glorify God. And when they glorify God, you will find yourself overwhelmed with joy, remembering that when God is most glorified, we are most satisfied. In their joy will be your joy, and in all of the joy, God gets the glory. That is awesome. So when we are generous and we are distributing, giving, and supplying, we are doing it ultimately for the glory of God, not for the praise of man. Jesus said when you're giving, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Don't be blowing trumpets and letting everyone, I'm giving here, everyone, I'm giving. (laughs) When we pass the bags around, make sure you don't hold it up. There are so many things that I wish I had time to explain, but God is doing in and through our church to meet people's needs that is just incredible. And what's so amazing is I've sat in an office a couple times with folks who are weeping. I can't believe that you guys are going to help me with this. And then it's so fun to be able to pray with them. And then I will often pray, God, thank you for providing for us. And I will hear people say, yes, God, thank you. And they bypass us. And they just go right to God where they ought to go. Verse 13. By their approval, by the recipients' approval of this generosity, look what happens. They will glorify God. Why? Two reasons. Let's start with the second reason, which is the, the last half. Because of the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So that's one reason. Man, they just praise God for your generosity. They just cannot believe it. Second reason. Let's go up one. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the word submission there means obedience. And the word there, confession, means profession. When you profess faith. The recipients of our generosity will glorify God because of our obedience. And our obedience flows out of our profession of the gospel. Remember, we talked about this so much, brothers and sisters. When we understand the gospel, the grace of God to give generously his son to redeem us and restore us and to save us from the wrath of God, we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
And when you look in chapter 8, verse 2, it talks about how the abundance of joy overflows into wealth of generosity. So generosity is the outcome of a joy that is overflowing, and the joy has come because of our understanding of the gospel. And so the more we understand the gospel and the more we understand God's grace, the more that we're filled with joy and that joy overflows out of us and it results in generosity that people see. And then when they say things like, why are you doing this? You don't say, because, because I want to make sure you know how awesome I am. <laughs> you will rightly say, I'm nothing but a worm. I'm a sinful human being and apart from the grace of God, I'm nothing. And then we have every incentive to share with them the glorious gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Oh, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. I'm out of time, so let's do this. Romans 12, 13, the Apostle Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Jesus said in Acts 20, 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paula White and the other prosperity preachers would have you believe it is more blessed to give in order to receive. And Jesus teaches it's more blessed to give than to receive, not in order to receive. Blessed means happy or joy. Brothers and sisters, if you want true abiding joy, it's to be found in Jesus and nowhere else. And the way that we can experience joy in terms of our giving is when we give, not in order to get, but we give because we know that in our giving, people will glorify God and as they glorify God we get the joy I want to end our service because we're way after time with a prayer this prayer is written by a man named Jared Wilson we're going to be studying together as a church the Lord's Prayer in two weeks so get your books and what he did is he wrote a prayer in kind of the form of the Lord's Prayer about money and stuff and so I want to end our service with this prayer so let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, give us neither poverty nor riches, lest we be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest we be poor and steal and profane your name. Give us just enough, Lord, to nourish our families, to pay our debts, to fulfill our obligations, to keep our promises, and invest in your work according to your will and supplying all our needs in accordance with the riches of Jesus Christ. And if you should say no and give us poverty, grant us contentment and purest hope and a deep, settled resolution to the sufficiency of your grace. And if you should say no and give us riches, then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not give us more than we can bear in service to your kingdom. And if you send increases of our riches, also send increase in our capacity for generosity and discipline us in our greed, covetousness, miserliness, and inhospitableness.
So Lord, grant us some of our material wants, but not too many. Not one more than would distract us from the joy of treasuring you. And if that be none of our wants or all of them, then we pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.